Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, as we read verses 2 through 19. Hear now the word of God. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you send your spirit to help us today, that we could understand the truth as you have given it to us And so that we can have it applied to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. During the week, one of the things that I that I do and that I've had the privilege of spending some time doing this this school year is teaching an apologetics class at St. Stephen's. And Part of the class, we have spent some time talking about the authenticity of the New Testament documents. And in particular, we've been talking about the signs within the text itself that what we see is a real account of real events, not something that was written far later. Um, And there are examples in the Gospels of things that you would not include if you were inventing the Gospel stories whole cloth. And you were trying to make it as believable as possible, as convincing as possible for the most people possible to follow. 
There are just things that you would not include if that was the motivating factor in how you were and why you were writing the New Testament. Um, I'll give you a few examples so you know what I'm talking about. One of the examples, and I've highlighted this before, certainly around Easter time, we talked about the resurrection and I've mentioned this, is the fact that the earliest reports of the resurrection come from women. Um, in the first century context, you would not do this if you were trying to have the most credible report of the resurrection possible. And that is not because there's anything wrong with women, but because in the first century, they had a problem with women. <laughs> they, they didn't listen to them. Uh, you had to have multiple women in order to have the testimony of one, one man in court. Um, and so culturally, you just wouldn't have done that. You would not have invented this if you're trying to persuade the culture. The only reason you would put it in the text is because that's what happened. Um, you have other examples of this sort of thing as well. The sort of things that, in, in a sense, make it more believable if you think about it and actually make it less believable uh, to your average listener. For example, the cowardice and fear of the disciples. Um, why include their fear? Why include the fear as they are hiding in the upper room? Uh, why include reports that they don't initially believe that the resurrection took place? You know, if you want people to listen to you as a church, maybe the best approach is not to include in the text the very leaders of the church not believing the message. Well, you know, t today's reading is another event in Scripture that I think contributes to this argument that, that this was not a story you would make up after the fact. Um, why on earth... Would any author who is trying to persuade the world that Jesus is the Messiah include the doubts and questions of his chief messenger, John the Baptist? Why would you do it? The only plausible explanation is that this episode is real, it's authentic, it was something that actually happened, and that's why it's included. You see, today's passage is centered around John the Baptist and how he was received by people. But by extension, it's also an inescapably a passage about Jesus. The same people who reject John are rejecting Jesus. And so the criticisms of John are similar to the criticisms of Jesus. That's why by the end of the passage, Jesus makes it not only about John's rejection, but also about Jesus being rejected. For him, these things all hang together. They all go together. And so because of that, this we need to look at the overall narrative. Um, and let's do that under three points this morning. The first is the questions of John. Second, the fulfillment of John. And then third, the rejection of John. Uh, let's just move right through it, starting in verse 2. Uh, we have the questions of John in verses 2 to 6. In these verses... John is in prison. Uh, we know from the narrative that he is going to be beheaded. We know that, that John is not going to be released, that this is really the end of his life uh, in the narrative. And so he asks Jesus a question. He hears about the deeds of Jesus. He's in prison. Everything's secondhand for him. And so he asks through his disciples, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So what's going on here? Isn't John the Baptist the forerunner? Isn't he the one who told everyone, listen to Jesus? Um, isn't he the one who was there for Jesus' baptism and the one that he said was, was unworthy even to untie Jesus' sandals? Isn't that John the Baptist? And now here he is saying, are you the one who is to come? 
I think that we instinctively feel uneasy with the idea that what's happening here is that John is doubting Jesus. In fact, you see this in the early church fathers. When they looked at this passage of of John the Baptist, they were also uneasy with what seems to be happening here. And so when they thought about this passage, they, they, they made other assumptions. They surmised that what was actually happening here was that John was asking the question for the benefit of others. Um, I've mentioned that I have been reading John Chrysostom and that I've been reading him. I think I mentioned it in Sunday school, that I've been reading him as I've been going through Matthew. And I was fascinated by the way John Chrysostom handles this passage because he is uneasy with John the Baptist expressing doubts. So what does he say? Chrysostom says that this is John's way to introduce his own disciples to Jesus. Uh, His claim is, John the Baptist is going to die. His disciples need to go to Jesus. And this is John the, John the Baptist's way of getting his disciples to start following Jesus, is to send them uh, to the prison to meet with Jesus and to ask this question. And so, um, you know, they're going to need a new master. Chrysostom says, John's time is near. This conversation has to happen. And yet I, I think this interpretation has problems. One of the problems is the assumption that it makes, one of the assumptions that I think Chrysostom is unhappy with, is this idea that there's a problem with the prophet of God having doubts or questions. Um, It seems to imply that the prophet is some sort of stoic, immovable rock with no opinion, no personal interpretation of the message God has given him to preach. But I think this, this reading also means that the question from John isn't sincere. That, that, that would mean that this is part of a performance. Uh, I think the less obvious reading that Chrysostom gives would be necessary if it conflicted with some other teaching of Scripture. If there was somewhere else that God said something otherwise. But, but in this case, there's no conflict between John's status as a prophet and his questions and his apparent doubt. John can be the prophet of God. And he can have serious issues that he needs Jesus to answer. Um, And so because of that, I don't think it's necessary for us to read this passage as anything other than what it looks like. John is in prison. He is struggling. He is suffering. And he's struggling between what he knows, you know, what he has said before, his message, and what he fears could be true. What he hopes is not true. Um. All of God's people know that struggle between what we know and what we feel. We all know that struggle between knowing the truth and loving or believing it or struggling through to believe it. Here's what I want you to see. That this is a passage that helps us to be reminded of the limitations and finitude of the prophet. When I say finitude, I mean they're just not omniscient. Right? Even though he speaks for God, even though he says the words that God gives for him to say, the prophet is not a perfect man. He isn't omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Um, if you read the books of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Jonah or Hosea, you come away with it very much aware of the humanity and the limitations of the prophets. So don't assume that because they were prophets, they were flawless men. Every single one of the prophets was a sinner. 
They spoke God's word perfectly as God spoke to them, as moved by God. They told the truth as God intended them to say it. But sometimes they struggled to even love the message that they were preaching. Right? The book of Jonah shows us a prophet who, who does what God says. He, he preaches the message that God tells him to preach. And he does it through gritted teeth. And then he reacts with depression when the preaching actually works. The city repents and he hates it. He hates it so much that he says that he wishes he could die. That's how much he hates the message of God. Um, it's not very nice, right? That's, that's not a very nice portrait of, of Jonah. But it, here's what it is, though. And that's not what John does. John doesn't hate the message that he's preaching. But it is a very human and finite portrayal of the prophet that probably does make us a little uncomfortable. I think the book of Jonah makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes you have prophets even telling God they don't want to say what he tells them to say. Um, Jeremiah, we often know as the weeping prophet, um, he was not a prophecy machine. He was a human being who was brokenhearted for himself and he was brokenhearted for his people and he was brokenhearted over his own heart struggles. And at one point, he compares God to a deceptive stream with water that's unreliable. He says things to God that we would shudder at. And yet Jeremiah has a very transparent spiritual life. And yet he's the prophet of God. Isaiah. Isaiah is no saint. Uh, In Isaiah 6, what happens? He's in the sanctuary of God. He sees the glory of God. And what does he do? He covers his mouth because he is so sinful. And his encounter with God leaves him feeling so guilty that he pronounces a woe upon himself. He knows himself. See, there's no conflict between John the prophet and John the questioner. Both of those things are true. Now, does this mean that his... His questions or doubts are are good. Does it mean that that it's praiseworthy for John to ask these questions? Um, Are they even neutral? Um, I want to be clear. I would not go so far as to say that it is a good thing to doubt what God has said. I think that would be a, a foolish thing to say, and I think it would be on its face be wrong. When we doubt, when we hesitate, when we don't take God at his word... On some level, we need to recognize that it is an expression of human weakness that we don't immediately believe and love what God has said to us when he speaks. We need to see that. And so when I say words like weakness, I'm not trying to downplay it. Ultimately, it comes from sin that we hear what God says and we don't immediately believe it. Um, In the same way that if you had put sugar on your tongue and did not immediately taste sweetness, that would mean something's wrong with your tongue. Right? And it's the same way with God's word. When we hear it, the right response is to instantly believe it because he's the authority, because he's God. And if there is a slowness to believe, we should see that as a problem with ourselves, not a virtue. But, but I want you to think carefully about this subject for a moment. The subject of doubt, the subject of questioning. Um, you know, I mentioned this, the apologetics class when we, when we first started and One of the assumptions that I make with every student is that they will have questions that they want answered. And my assumption is that their questions should be taken seriously. Much of the class is built around anticipating many of the questions that high school and college students will be confronted with. They're either going to be confronted by them by their own heart 
or they're going to be confronted by them by other students, or they're going to have unbelieving professors who push upon them and who, who challenge them, and they may or may not be ready to answer them. See, my assumption is that doubts are normal. Questions are normal. And here's what I think can happen. I can easily imagine this happening, right? Uh, um, a parent panics when their child says, how do I know what the, the, that what the Bible says is true? And a parent instantly is afraid because they're afraid that the child doesn't want to believe. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid. They're asking me this because they don't want to believe the Bible. And actually the question comes because they do want to believe. But it's time for them to grow from a simplistic receptive faith into a faith that actually resides in their own heart and they want to own it for themselves. That's why they ask the questions. I'm not concerned about doubts in people when they express and look for the answers. What what I'm really concerned about, honestly, is people who never ask questions. They never have any doubts uh, that they that they're when they have doubts. What do they do? They push them down, right? Or they have no thoughts about whether it's true or not. I'm concerned about both of those approaches to life. I'm I'm concerned about both of those uh, types of ways of dealing with questions. When you ask how you can know something is, is true, it's because you're actually taking it seriously. That, that, that is the question that comes from an intention that says, I actually want to believe, and I actually want to believe it because it's true. See, we, we believe that the things in this book actually happen in real space, in real time. It's quite a claim. And, and it's a claim about what the world is like. And what we are saying is that what is in this book comports with reality. We should expect that questions arise. They will. Um, a, a church attender who doesn't ask if it's even true seems to me to be someone who hasn't thought through the call of Jesus on their life. Here's what I mean. The person who is about to jump out of a plane and hasn't thought about what they're about to do, may not care about examining the parachute, right? Somebody who hasn't thought about what's about to happen, you realize we're about to jump out of this plane. You don't care whether that parachute is attached, whether there is a parachute in there. You you don't even care if there are pots and pans inside of that bag you don't want to check. You don't care at all. We're about to jump out of a plane, right? (laughs) Um examining your shoot is healthy right think on these things care that they are really true when you're looking in scripture you find that god is very gracious to people who doubt he is um when god originally speaks to gideon in the book of judges he speaks very clearly to him he gives him these these commands for israel god doesn't stutter when he talks to to gideon but then what does gideon do over and over again he doubts and he hesitates and he's slow to do what God plainly said. Honestly, he looks like he's looking for excuses constantly, just finding a reason not to do it. Just find, give me a reason not to do it, Lord. Um, he calls God into question. And instead of striking Gideon dead, which he probably deserved, instead of striking Gideon dead, God has mercy on him. And he gives him repeat opportunities to hear the word, to have it confirmed, to have his doubt quieted. Um, I would have been so savage towards Gideon if I had been God. I would give him one chance and I'd be like, I'm God. No more questions. I'll find somebody else, you know. Um, 
one of a trillion reasons why you could be glad I'm not God. Um, I mean, God has spoken and Gideon knows it. He has doubts that God will do what he has said. And God is so kind to him. It is it is one of the most patient passages in scripture. You just read the story of Gideon and you, there's nothing praiseworthy there. There's nothing there going, oh, I've got to be like this guy. It's like the whole passage is about not believing what God said. And God is patient and kind to him. Um, think of Thomas. right? Thomas struggles to believe that Jesus has risen. He, he has had all of his brothers... All 10 of the other apostles who are, are living at that time tell him, we saw Jesus. And he thinks they're all lying to him. I mean, that, that has to be the conclusion, right? He says he wants to see Jesus in physically and empirically. And you can imagine all of his brothers looking at him going, you think we're lying? You think we're all lying to you? He says, I won't believe unless you give me empirical proof. I need to see proof of the risen Jesus. Um, And that's something, by the way, that Jesus acknowledges after the Thomas incident. He says, almost every Christian that ever lives on the face of this planet doesn't get what you're getting, Thomas. Just so you know, I'm being super gracious with you. Um, He comes to Thomas and he personally answers his doubts. Again, like that would have been me pulling out the lightning bolts. How do you have that kind of patience with someone who calls 10 of his brothers liars? The Lord is so gracious. Here's what he does. He uses our doubts and questions to grow us. You know, Thomas, through that experience, is a different person on the other side of meeting Jesus than he was on the, at the beginning. Right? He ends up becoming a different man. And God knows how he worked in Thomas's life and used that doubt but I, I am certain of this, that he was different because of his doubts. And maybe he even had a kind of mercy on doubters when he met them because of his experience and because of the mercy of Jesus. Um, I, I can't say specifically. We don't have a Bible text that tells us. But we know this about the Lord, that he uses things. He uses these things in our lives. Um, much of my own journey to Christ and deeper into the things of God began with doubts. Um, uh, doubts that ran on for a number of years. Um, if I had never had my questions, it's hard to understand how I ever would have grown. Um, asking those questions for myself, having those questions answered, they helped me to have a faith in God that wasn't just my parents' faith sort of warmed up. Instead, it really was my own. And when you're young and your parents are taking care of you and they are teaching you about the Lord... If they're, and, I, and I'm speaking to you kids now in the room. You know, we have, if you look at the numbers in our, in our church, um, like a third of our congregation is children. Um, that's a pretty incredible reality, actually. Um, I probably should talk to you kids more in the sermons than I do. But I'm talking to you here um, this morning, kids. That, that if your parents are, are teaching you about the Lord Jesus, if they're telling you what God has said in your word, then they are loving you greatly and you should honor your parents. You should trust what they say. You should listen to what they say. But there, there's meant to be a day where you realize that the Apostles' Creed begins, I believe in God the Father, not my parents believe in God the Father. Right? When we say the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in God the Father, not mom and dad believe in God the Father. 
Um, there is meant to be a, a time where you realize that for yourself and it becomes your own. Um, these things need to become your own, but part of the way that happens is by having questions that maybe some people you know can't answer. And then what has to happen? It forces you to seek out the answers on your own. And so for that reason, I'm not alarmed about doubts and questions. And, and I hope parents will not be alarmed by their children expressing doubts and questions. And I certainly hope that when you are experiencing doubts and questions of your own, however old you are, that you will not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't let it become a, a worrying or, or a reason to become anxious. Um, here's the other thing, though. Don't ignore the questions. Engage with the questions. Pursue the questions. Ask God to help you carefully work through them. Do not be afraid that Christianity cannot stand up to the scrutiny because it can. That's why it's still here 2,000 years later. It is still here because it stands the scrutiny. But I also want you to see that the act of scrutinizing will be a reward in itself because as you look more closely, you will know the Lord better. Um, look at your questions as an opportunity. And once you seize that opportunity and you chase down that answer, you will begin bit by bit to know the Lord better for yourself in a way that wasn't just given to you by someone else. It wasn't just handed to you. Doubts and questions really can come from a place of actually wanting to know what you believe is really true, that it accords with reality. And if that is you, please don't feel alarmed. Don't feel fearful. Questions are a sign that you want to believe these things truly for yourself. They are a part of growing up as a follower of Jesus. Don't see signs, don't see questions as a sign of spiritual problems. See them as an opportunity to be seized and a sign that it's time for you to go deeper. It's time for you to go deeper. Your questions will be something that the Lord uses to grab hold of your heart and take you deeper with him. It is not wrong for us to come to God with our questions, expecting that he has the answers for us. Here's what happens. That's what John does, right? John goes to the right place. John, John sends this question to Jesus. John is weak, like us. He's, he's human. He needs Jesus to speak to his own heart. He needs Jesus to quiet his doubts. And here's what happens. When we see him send for Jesus... He is giving us the perfect picture of how our own doubts and questions should be addressed. We go to Jesus with them. We don't turn within ourselves. We don't turn away from him. We turn towards him. We come to him with a faith and a hope that expects that the answer will be found. Now, I mentioned John having doubts. What, what could his doubts have actually been? What, what is, what's actually going on with John? Well, we need to remember that, that when John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus' public ministry hadn't begun at that point. Um, uh, as time went on, Jesus moved forward. He was preaching. He was traveling, proclaiming the good news. But he received a variety of reactions throughout his ministry. Um, even as people followed him, you know, his own disciples thought that he was going to be different than he was. You know, as they're traveling with him and hearing him preaching and he's doing the Sermon on the Mount, they're asking him questions like, when are we going to lead the rebellion? When are we going to rise up? When are we going to cast Rome off? 
When are we going to step up and be the new rulers of Israel? When are you going to become the king? Why aren't you gathering troops? You know, these sort of questions and assumptions. They believe Jesus would get them out from under Rome's thumb. That's why they're having arguments about who's going to sit on thrones with Jesus. They're not talking about heaven. They're thinking about the here and now. Now, my point here is this. Jesus was not the Messiah anyone seemed to be expecting. He came as a suffering servant. Neither John nor Jesus' followers seem to have been ready for the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. Everyone was looking for a conquering king, and Jesus was emphatically not that. It would be very easy if John's idea of the Messiah was different than what Jesus was doing for John to reach out to get the the answer from the best possible source. That's what he does. He goes to Jesus. Now today, people try to make Jesus in their own image and create a comfortable version of him to suit them. Jesus is not comfortable and Jesus is not controllable. He is who he is, not who we want him to be. He is who he has always been and who he was always supposed to be. We are the ones with the problem. Not Jesus when we doubt. But Jesus answers John. Just like the kindness that God shows to to Gideon, just like the kindness that Jesus eventually shows to Thomas, he's kind to John here. And you know, you could have, you know, this is so kind and loving of him because he could have been so offended. He could have been so upset. You know, he could have been like, no one should know this answer better than you, John. Why are you asking me this? Instead, Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus tells John, and by extension, he's telling us and he's telling his followers and he's telling everyone else, all you need to know is that everything is going according to exactly what the scriptures say. Take a look at the prophecies of scripture and you will see that I am doing everything the Messiah was supposed to do. Jesus answers John's doubt with an appeal to the scriptures. He quiets John's heart with the word of God. And in that sense, Jesus is showing us that our answers will come from God himself, not from speculation and not from guesswork. What a model for you and I when we have questions. Second, today, I want you to see the fulfillment of John in in verses 7 to 15. Um, We can't look at everything that happens here in depth. That's part of what happens when you get a larger passage like we have today. Um, But Jesus has, think about what's going on here. Jesus has just told John about himself. Now he teaches the crowd about John. He wants them to think well about John. And Jesus is is challenging the crowds and he's challenging their perception of crowds Um, First, he asked if they expected some weak, frail person. Um, That wasn't John, of course. He was bold. He didn't worry about what people thought of him. Uh, Second, he asks if they were expecting a well-dressed prophet, you know, the sort of fellow you might find as an advisor in the court of the kings. That wasn't John. He was a wild man dressed like he belonged in the wilderness. Um, Third, he asks if they went out to see a mere prophet. They keep getting him wrong. 
Like the previous two things, the answer is that even that was a mistake. He was not just a prophet. He was not another in a long line of messengers because he had a relationship with Jesus. These crowds went to John, but they did not understand John. And Jesus teaches the crowds who John the Baptist is and who John the Baptist was. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus is saying that John was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 3. I'm going to read Malachi 3.1 so that you can hear the prophecy Jesus is saying John fulfills. Remember, this is 400 years earlier. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi 4.5 identifies that messenger who would go before the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jesus tells the crowds, John is the fulfillment of this prophecy. There were two messengers in this passage in Malachi. First, there is a messenger of the covenant who was the same as the Lord of, the, a Lord of hosts. But then there's also this messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord of hosts. So it's a prediction that Jesus would come, but that there would be a messenger who would go before Jesus. This passage in Malachi indicated that someone would come before Jesus to prepare the way before me. And it indicates that the one who follows that messenger is none other than Yahweh of hosts himself. That's why God says he will prepare the way before me. So Malachi was telling us that Elijah would prepare the way by pointing to the Messiah so that we would know him when we see him. And he was telling us that the Messiah would be Yahweh, that he would be God. He is identifying God himself with Jesus. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on what it means that John is Elijah who is to come. We need to go ahead and dispel one idea, the idea of reincarnation. We need to dispel the idea of resurrection here. John the Baptist was born of Elizabeth. Scripture doesn't teach anything pertaining to reincarnation. Scripture teaches a doctrine of resurrection. It does not teach a doctrine of reincarnation. In fact, the teaching of Scripture is it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. So it is not once to die, twice to die, thrice to die, over and over, ad infinitum. The scripture doesn't teach reincarnation. And so if you know people who point to John the Baptist and say, here, this is how you know the Bible teaches reincarnation, uh, tell them that they are wrong and then show them why. Um, it's appointed to man once to die. There's your, there's your verse to help them. Um, our soul doesn't come back in another body. We can't live a second life. Scripture instead tells us that one day our body will be raised up new. That is a very different thing than the Eastern belief in reincarnation. But still, what does it mean that John is Elijah? It means that he is the one like Elijah. Right? Malachi was predicting there would be a long time of silence. Then finally the spirit of prophecy would return. For people in the time of Malachi, Elijah would have been the one they think of when they think of the return of the prophets. That's John. John comes dressed like Elijah, eating like Elijah, preaching hellfire like Elijah. Um, all for the purpose of pointing everyone to the one Malachi said would be the Lord of hosts. 
John is Elijah because his ministry is like Elijah's ministry. In verse 11, Jesus gives an important statement that we should all take to heart. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. As great as John was, Jesus says, it's still greater to experience the blessings of the kingdom than to be the one who inaugurates it. We should rejoice in what we have. We shouldn't live in nostalgia, wishing that we could have lived in the time of John, for instance. Jesus says, yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Third this morning, we have the rejection of John. In verses 16 and 19, Jesus has one more thing to add to his discussion of John. Uh, John was Elijah. The people should have listened to John. The leaders should have listened to John. Everyone should have listened to John. And yet, what does Jesus say? He, he says this. When we were doing family worship this week, I asked my children, do any of you understand this passage? And they didn't understand it. And... If I'm honest, it was a long time before I understood it too. I didn't understand the story Jesus is telling here. I'm going to read the story. I'm going to try and explain it for you. And I want you to see how it connects to Jesus and John. Um, This is in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So when Jesus uses this phrase, this generation, he uses it to talk about his contemporaries, and it is almost always negative. Uh, it is, in fact, I'm, I think I'm correct to say it's always negative when he talks about this generation. Um, He uses it in the context of unbelief and rejection. And so Jesus tells a story to illustrate the nasty little situation he finds himself in, right? In that sort of no-win situation. He tells a story of children playing in the marketplace. Um, This is something that would happen a lot. Again, Jesus is great at illustrations. And and in this story, these children are very grumpy children, you know? I'm sure that you've experienced this this winter where you are trapped inside because it's rainy and or it's snowy. Everyone's tired of going out in the snow. They're tired of going out in the rain. And so everybody's inside and your kids say, I don't know what to do. And then you say, well, that's a great opportunity to clean your room. And they don't want to do that. And then they say, I want to watch something. And, or they say, there's nothing I want to watch. You know, and they're restless and they, they, they're not happy. I know none of us know this. It's just me. But... Jesus is telling a story about these kids who can never be pleased, right? They don't want a fun game, and they don't want a sad game. Now, I don't know kids that play sad games, but apparently Jesus knew some. He'd maybe seen it before. Yet in the story, you have these two groups. You have the sad kids, and you have the happy kids. You have the, the wild kids who want to play, and then you have the other kids who want to do a sad dance. One game is celebrating. Another game is like a funeral game. And so in the story, Jesus is like the one who's offering the fun game to them. He's the one who comes eating and drinking. And John is like the one offering them the sad funeral judgment game, right? He's the one who came neither eating nor drinking. This generation that Jesus is talking about doesn't want either. 
They can find a problem with Jesus because he drinks too much. And they can find a problem with John because he doesn't drink enough, right? Um, They're not happy no matter what they get. There is no pleasing them. John and Jesus are both rejected by the people and for the same reasons. See, the response of the crowds to true, good, perfect messages is to still reject it. They still reject it no matter how perfect it is. And there's a reminder here that because of the depravity of the human heart, we will find any way we can to reject God's truth when it comes to us. We'll find it. We'll, we'll find the littlest reason, the, the dumbest reason. The problem really isn't with the message. The problem really is with us and it's with our own hearts. There's something else here for us that I, I hope we'll take it to heart. What does Jesus say at the tail end? He says, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, Jesus is wisdom and the truth about him will eventually be seen. He is not worried that the truth is going to be lost. He's not worried that the truth is going to be buried. Jesus is proven right and true by his ministry and by his works. The same is actually true of John the Baptist. One way or another, the truth will out. And I think this is a very important encouragement in our own day. The truth of the message should never be seen as hinging on how popular it is or whether people find it persuasive. Um, One of my teachers, whenever a student told him he disagreed, was very fond of saying, and you've probably heard this before, you are entitled to your wrong opinion. Um, There's a such thing as truth. And truth is not decided democratically. Um, Truth is impervious to the popularity of crowds. What an incredible encouragement when we have a message that is unpopular. It It is an invincible, absolute reality that exists independent of your opinion or the crowd's opinion or the evaluation of so called experts. That's Jesus. Because Jesus knows his message has a hearing, but he also knows that it'll be rejected as much as it's received. At the tail end of Jesus' comments about John, he talks about how the people of of Israel found something wrong with him and something wrong with John no matter what. And there, there is always a reason. There's always an excuse. There's always some reason, however shallow, why someone might say they're rejecting Jesus. Um, We may all think deep down that if if we could just be smarter or wiser or cleverer as Christians, if only we could be more aggressive debaters. If we could just have that that oomph, that that X factor that that, that, uh, some some people seem to have. If only we were more extroverted. If, If only we were more knowledgeable. If only we were this or that then maybe we would be better witnesses for the Lord. Maybe we would convince more people. Maybe we would be successful and convert crowds of people. Um, I know that sounds stupid, but it's not. I mean, well, maybe it is stupid, but I occasionally beat myself up because I could imagine myself doing more and serving better and being more productive and achieving more, and yet I, I don't. So this is, this is me talking about me now. Um, but, but all Christians have that struggle, right? But think about this. Jesus and John the Baptist, the two greatest preachers ever, what happened? People found them fascinating 
People listened, and yet they found a reason to say no to the greatest preachers that ever lived. And people will. You know, people's hearts, they really will find an argument, or something's not even an argument, sometimes just a feeling that in their opinion is good enough. You know, truly where there's a will, there's a way. Yet what does Jesus say? Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So I want to, I want to close with this, with this encouragement. The truth will out. Wisdom will prevail. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus will be seen and known one way or another. So this is really important. Do not put your finger in the air to feel which way the mood of the age is blowing. Do not look at opinion polls about Jesus. Don't trust ideas just because they're popular. Those things don't get us an inch closer to the truth. Popularity and acceptance are not the goal. They were never the goal. Don't lament its, its absence. It is God who vindicates us, not the world, not the world's opinion. Jesus was rejected, and yet he truly was who he said he was. So do not fear. Do not lose hope. The world does not love the truth. In fact, the world rejects the truth. And yet, as our Lord has told us, he has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Lord, would you protect us from the the human weakness that tempts us to yearn for popularity. Protect us from finding encouragement in the popularity of you and of your truth. Give us lives that are built upon the firm and unchanging truth so that we love and believe that which you tell us. Help us never to be so foolish as to lean upon the wavering wishes and opinions of the crowds. You are far more trustworthy, O God. May we go to you with these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.